good morning, and thank you for coming and joining us this morning. It's a good day to be with you guys. Uh, and for those of you who are just joining for the first time, my name is Brian. I'm the director of our worship and collegiate ministries. Uh, and I, I should say, we'll be soon departing from that role and from that position. Uh, in case you're just joining the series, we've been talking about being on mission as the church, specifically this call to generosity and the call to church planting. And both are connected. Both are uh, outflows of seeking to share the gospel with those who do not know. And so taking up that call, my wife, Melinda, and I, along with a team of 22 people, 15 of whom are from Trailhead, we're heading to Phoenix in January to join alongside a movement of churches that are engaged in the work of gospel declaration. And to that end, we feel called to plant a church in the East Valley, in an area that's exploding with people, literally. This, this is an area that is home to no one right now. It's projected to be home to over a million people within 20 years. Illinois hasn't seen that type of growth in over 100 years. And we're excited about this. We're excited to meet our neighbors. We're excited to learn the community we intend to reach. We're excited to take the trails and to see where the sidewalk ends, literally, because it's just desert. But we're also excited to develop ties. We're excited to see who will one day be close friends and future leaders in a church that only exists in the mind right now. But if I'm honest, we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed at the possibility and the probability of what it's going to cost to start over. Overwhelmed at the reality that every milestone we come across and we cross leads to a greater milestone that requires more faith. Support raising led to selling a home, led to buying a home. My wife and I recently were accepted to purchase a home in Phoenix. We close next month. Right now, we're living with her parents. It's a weird time, but it's working. <laughs> we got four kids, plus two grandparents, plus two parents, all smushed into one house. So far, nobody has become enraged, so praise God. But we're, we're buying, and so we've got this project happening over there. We just packed our home up this week. It was incredibly emotional. Incredibly overwhelming. And, and all of these milestones are just to go and do more milestones to then go and meet neighbors, to go and meet an entire community of neighbors. And once we've met those neighbors, to push into other communities and meet those neighbors. And once you start meeting those, you start building a team. And once you start building a team, you start launching a church. And here's the thing with launching a church. There's no mulligans. There's no, well, let's just take a moment and think about this. When you open the doors, the doors stay open until I close them or somebody else does. There's no pausing this thing. And here's the other thing we're overwhelmed by. We're overwhelmed by letting people down. If you're here today and you're part of my team, just know Melinda and I will let you down. We will. We're human. We're sinners. And more than that, we don't know what we don't know. And we're overwhelmed at doing all this 21 hours away from this family, from this community, from these friendships. Melinda and I have built deep relationships within this community. Deep relational roots with the men and women in this church. Our best friends live here. Our closest advisors are here. We met in this church. We've welcomed five children into our home in this church, one of whom is buried in a cemetery down there. You don't just recreate this. You don't just snap your fingers and everything's replaced. You mourn the loss. Planting, giving, gospel declaration, there's an aspect of loss in there. That's what you join up for. 
So even as we're excited, we're overwhelmed. And even as we're overwhelmed, and in many ways are mourning this time, we're also just scared. Here's the thing with startups and church plants in particular, there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. We're leaving to start something, and we have no idea if it's actually going to turn out the way we hoped. You heard Aaron Parks and Joni two weeks ago. They described exactly that. And God is still good and glorified in and through that. You heard Corey last week. He was a riot. He was great to have. Sometimes he blesses tenfold. I think he said they went out with a family of 40, and they're now 400. It's wild to think what God's doing. But we're scared. And here's the thing. Excited, overwhelmed, scared. These are all human emotions common to each of us. And as we head into our text this morning, I want you to have those three emotions in your mind. I want you to have them in your mind because here's the thing. I think the disciples probably felt all three of those emotions as they're standing before Jesus before he's about to ascend to the Father. Let's go ahead and read the text this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 28. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to verse 16. I don't have it on the screen because I want you to open up your Bibles or open up your Bible app. Whichever, just open up something. Look off a friend if you don't have it. But here's the thing. Keep these emotions in mind. Excited, overwhelmed, scared, fearful. And think, how do you think the disciples were feeling as they're hearing Jesus? Okay, Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Step back for a moment. We're going to reread this passage. But this time, I want you to have the context in mind, okay? So just walk through the emotion. Let's have the context. Jesus is about to depart. He had three years of earthly ministry, okay? Died, rose again, okay? And and roughly a 40-day span since. These are his final words to the disciples, This is what he wants in their minds. This is what he wants them to be thinking of when he leaves as he heads back to the Father. And think of the disciples. They're likely still reeling from the fact that their Savior, King Jesus, died in their eyes, has rose again, and is now leaving. Like, the first death was a surprise. Wait, we thought you were going to be establishing Israel as a nation and, you know, conquering, and and then you died. Now you're back, and you're going again? Why don't you stay with us? Add to that, Judas, did you catch it? There's 11 disciples. What happened to the 12th? The 12th betrayed all of them and then ended up hanging himself in desperation. This has been an emotionally turbulent time. This has been a radical time for them. And yet it's only the beginning. They've walked through all of these milestones and it's only the beginning. Pick it up again. Verse 16. Now the eleven went to Galilee. Again, one betrayed. To a mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We're going to talk a little bit about the mountain. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Proper response when you're standing before Jesus. 
And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We're going to unpack that word authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We're going to unpack go. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our triune God. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Okay, verse 20. My guess is after the disciples had witnessed all that they had witnessed, verse 20 was probably a very sweet thing to hear. And if I'm honest, verse 20 is a very sweet thing for me to hear too. To know he is always with me, no matter wherever he takes me, he comes with. Because if you're like me, and if you're like the disciples, let's be honest, we struggle to believe Jesus is with us at times. Do we not? We struggle to believe Jesus is with us. And here's the thing. It's easy to see why. There are times in our life where the sorrow is exceedingly real. And we're left to wonder, why on earth did God allow this to happen? Or how could he be good and still allow this to happen? And there's other times when fear takes over. When we start to envision a future that's devoid of anything good. It's just hardship and emotional pain and loss. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now, and it's hard to see that Jesus is with you. And if we're honest, can we just agree? Sometimes we think it would have been a lot easier if Jesus just stayed. Like, just set up the kingdom. Come on. You got this. You just rose from death. Set it up. His, his disciples thought so. Look at Acts 1. I don't have it on the screen, but I'll read it for you. This is what the, the disciples are saying to Jesus before he, before he takes off. He says, they, they come to him and they ask, Lord, will you, okay, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Eleven disciples asking a very valid question. Hey, you just rose from death. Do you want to set this thing up now? And he says, it's not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father is fixed by his authority. Then he goes on to say in verse 8 of chapter 6, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you, you, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, we, we are the primary agents for declaring the name of Jesus. We are the primary agents for setting upon this kingdom. That's why we were given the gift of life. That's why you and I have breath today. And it's why we embrace the excitement of living on mission. It's why we endure the hardship of life when we're overwhelmed. And it's why we cling to Jesus, knowing he is with us in spite of our fear. Because if Jesus is with us, how can we not tell others about him? If Jesus is with us, how can we not make the hope we have known to others? And since Jesus is with us, we must be disciples who make disciples, all of us. Jesus' plan A was not, hey, I'm going to come down, set it up, and then I'll go. His plan A was the Holy Spirit's going to indwell you as a people, and you're going to carry the message. That's his plan. And we're still living it out today. And we do this by two things. By being a people who are going. We're going to be a going people. We're going to unpack what that means from the text. And we're also going to be a people who keep watch. That word observe, 
I think in the NIV it's translated obey. Uh, the, the rendering is really this one of guarding and keeping watch over. And we'll look at that together. So we're going to talk about that. But before we do, let me just go ahead and say, we're wrapping up the series titled Harvest of Grace. We started by walking through the generosity of this church. And I think Corey said this last week, that generosity is not a sermon series. It's a core value of Trailhead. And he's absolutely correct. This church is radically generous and has been from the start. You can have a lot of complaints about a church, but one of the things about this one that you cannot complain about, it has been generous from the start. And it's one of the things that we're going to keep in our DNA as we go and plant. The other thing about this harvest of grace is this idea of church planting and sending people out. And what I want to close with this morning, what I want to end with this morning is that you... For those who are staying, for those who are continuing, for those who are seeking here in Edwardsville, you are part of the mission. It's not just about going out. It's not just about planting churches. It's not just about heading to Phoenix, although that's an aspect of what we do. It's you being on mission here. Each of us called by God to live faithfully before him. Let's go ahead and dive in to our text this morning as we look at being a going people and a people who keep watch. Look with me, verse 16 again, as we discover what does it mean to be a going people. Not the 11. I know we keep reading it, but it's good. Scripture, amen? The 11 went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, pause. Remembering our conversation about context, there's a few words I want to highlight for you this morning. First, 11 went to where? Where'd they go? They went to a mountain. Okay, why is a mountain so important? What's this thing about mountains? When you read the Old Testament, you're going to see that there's a lot of things that happen in and around mountains. It, 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 mountains often serve as a place of covenant proposal between God and man, or covenant renewal, okay? Think of Mount Sinai. This is where Moses first received the Ten Commandments. They had left Egypt. He had brought them out, even though Pharaoh's heart was totally bent and broken. He had brought them out. He had brought them through the Red Sea. And they went up to Mount Sinai, and there the Ten Commandments were given. It was a covenant proposal. You can think about Mount Moriah. This is where Abraham, okay, the first patriarch of Israel, this is where he offered his son Isaac. And in that last moment, God said, nope, going to provide a ram for you so that your son doesn't have to die because that's the child of promise. What was it? Covenant renewal. Covenant renewal. Or Jesus' own transfiguration where God spoke a blessing over his son and it happened on a mountain. Okay, here we see. Jesus is leading his disciples once again to a mountain to receive what? His final Word, his final declaration. Hey, I'm going to be with the Father. Take these words, listen to them, let them imbibe in you, let them breathe life through you. Happens on a mountain. And, and, and here's kind of the point if we're going to be a going people, you need huddle. <laughs> you need to remember the covenant. You need to remember the renewal. You need to be with the people of God, to be reminded of the promises of God. That's one of the main reasons why we gather on Sunday. It's one of the main reasons why community throughout the week is so important. We need to be a people, to be a going people, 
who huddle and remember the promise. Turning to verse 17, we see the disciples worshiping Jesus. And yet this text indicates some doubted. Now this would not be included for any other reason than it's true. They were gathering and some of them were still wondering, what's going on here, Jesus? And I love this. I I love this. The Bible speaks to the full expression of human thought and emotion. The disciples were not super Christians. They were regular people like you and me. They got excited. They became overwhelmed. They became at times scared. They were even doubting at times as Jesus had already risen. And the Bible doesn't gloss over that. Rather, it sets the stage for Jesus' response. Look with me in verse 18. He came to them, and this is what he says. He knows they're doubting. Some are. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Now, this sounds odd to our ears at first. Jesus is going to take this moment of doubt, and he's going to remind the disciples of his authority. And see, this only makes sense when you see Christ's authority as a blessing rather than a curse. This only makes sense when you see Christ in authority means Christ is in control, even when you and I are not. And that's the second piece of being a going people. It's not just huddling, remembering the promise. It's remembering it's in his hands. I recently had a moment where I was reminded just how little control I have in my life. Two weeks ago, I was heading off to Phoenix because we needed to buy a home. We had sold our home. We were closing on the 18th of this month. I needed to find a place that the Pacheco uh, group could live once we landed in Phoenix. And the day I was set to leave, an event happened that shook me to my core and quite honestly still shakes me when I think about it. My wife and I have four kids, one boy and three girls. And our third girl, her name's Mia, is a total spitfire. Okay, she is, she's my passion wrapped in her mama's face, right? Which means she's beauty and chaos, all mixed in one. And I apologize to the guys who tried to date her. You're going to find out she's got my blood running through her veins. Okay, so when something goes down in the Pacheco household, more often than not, she's had a hand in, near, or around it, right? Like something's happened, Mia's probably got something to do with it. It's Saturday morning, my flight leaves in three hours. And at that point, I hear a crash in the bedroom. Now, crashes in any room are not that uncommon in the Pacheco household, okay? Not that uncommon. If you have kids, you understand. If you don't have kids, just imagine. They're running around, knocking stuff over, knocking each other over. But this was a loud crash, so I kind of paused, and I was like, well, let's see if anybody cries, okay? I heard Mia cry out, not uncommon. (laughs) She cries out quite a bit. Normally, it's because Calvin's taking something. But this was kind of a cry of of fear and panic, right? There's different variations of cry. There's like, not just normal cry, routine cry, escalation cry, and I'm, something's wrong. Okay, there's kind of in between those top two brackets. And so I, I was starting to make my way off the couch, and that's when I heard Melinda cry out. Now, if you don't know my wife, she is calm as a cucumber, okay? She's very steady. So when she cries, something has gone terribly wrong. So I rushed into the room, and our little Mia was pinned under our very large and heavy dresser. So filled with strength that could have moved the car, her mom and I got the thing off of her. It is a heavy dresser. 
we're looking around. We're seeing if anything's wrong. She's got a bruise on her face, and, and that seems to be about it. Otherwise, it's fine. Shaken, but she's fine. I, on the other hand, am not fine. I am not fine. I'm still not fine to this day. She should have been crushed or severely disabled or worse. It makes no sense to me. None. I spent the next two hours on my face before the Lord. Because when something like that happens, you run to Jesus. Either for blessing or worse. Good or bad, you run to Jesus. Get in that habit. Make a habit. When something goes crazy, run to Jesus. Don't run away from him. Jonah tried that. Doesn't work. Run to him. And running to him, I began to cry out. I have no control. And see, what was bubbling in my heart that morning was thinking through all the logistical things. How are we going to go and buy a house in this Phoenix market? It's insane. It's insane. George can tell you about it. It's insane. Homes evaluated two, three times their worth that they were just two years ago because speculation has gone insane. I'm buying somebody else's greed. That's what I'm doing. But in that moment, I remembered how little I controlled. And I remembered how much our King Jesus controls. And man, it broke me. It broke me. Here's the thing. Most of us live lives worrying about things that are very little consequence in the grand scheme of life. You know, the thing you're not worried about when you find a dresser on your daughter, you're not worried about how much you overpaid for a house. You don't care. You don't care. It was his grace that brought me to my knees, and in that moment he reminded me it's his hand, his hand that sustains So why am I going to worry about these things? Now here's the thing. This is a good story, right? Mia's safe. Mia's great. I don't know how it happened. Sometimes it goes the other way. We've had that experience too. And in both scenarios, God is good. And you cannot say that unless you've walked through that. And I'm telling you, having walked through that, he still is good. He still is with you. His nearness fills. His peace surpasses understanding. That's not cliche, that's not easy speak, that's not Christianese, that's real, it's true, and it's because the presence of Jesus is with you if you are his. That's the only thing. Good or bad, he remains, he is true, and he's in control. And why is this so important? Guys, if we're going to be a going people, if we're going to be a people that huddle around and remind ourselves of the promises, we have to be a people that trust it's in his hands. We have to. Because if we don't, we're never going to (laughs) go. We're never going to share. We're never going to talk. We're never going to bring the good news of Jesus because really it's not that important to us. It's not really on our minds all that much because we're worried about other things. And here's the thing. There's a ton of things to worry about. You could worry all day and all night and fix nothing. I wish I could say I lived my life that way always. But in truth, I often need to be reminded, usually not in as dramatic of a fashion as I just described, but I need to be reminded. Catch this, y'all. We will never make disciples of Jesus if we don't have our eyes on Jesus. We'll make disciples of ourselves. 
but we won't make disciples of him. And it's at this point, it's at this moment, again, on a mountain, some are disbelieving, that Jesus then goes in to say his command. He says, now, go therefore and make disciples. Here's the thing, he wants your heart. Meet together, talk about it, remember the promise, remember he's in control. He wants your heart. And then go. We, we get this all screwed up. We say, go, then figure out your heart, and we'll figure out if you're even a Christian. No. Eyes on Jesus. And go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I wish I could spend, now I could spend all day on what go, therefore, means, but I'm not going to. I'm going to give you a very brief rundown. Take a word, Therefore, take stock of it. Steve always says, when you see the word therefore, you got to ask yourself, what is it therefore? It's actually really a helpful thing. Asking yourself, you're normally going to find the answer to that question in the verse that precedes it. In this case, the key word here is authority, okay? Because Jesus has authority in heaven, we are called to go and make disciples. Translation, because Jesus is in control, we are freed to go. Because Jesus is with us, we should go. We should want to go. Let's examine that word go. This, this has been used at times to argue that everyone needs to be in overseas missions. And if you're not doing missions, work somewhere else, then you're not listening to the verse. But, but let, let's dive into it. Looking at the Greek, this, this word translated go is the Greek word peruamai. Okay? It just means go. Okay? Go. When parsed, though, we're seeing that this is a participle of attendant circumstance. What does that mean? All it means is that it's a verb used to communicate the action of the main verb. So this verb is trying to, to basically communicate the action of whatever the main verb is in that sentence. What's the main verb? The main verb is the clause, make disciples. That's the main thing Jesus is saying in this verse. Make disciples. How do I want you to make disciples? Go. This has nothing to do with location. This has everything to do with eyes on making disciples. And method is intentionality. Be intentional with your making of disciples. Christ is commanding each of us to go into our local, regional, and national contexts. Not haphazardly, not optionally, but intentionally, we are to be a people who make disciples, who are disciples. Which means you have a part to play in this great mission. You have a part to play in the local, regional, and potentially national interest. Because remember that passage in Acts. He says, you will be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You, you. Now, not all of you, but collectively, as the church, some of us are going to go here, some of us are going to stay there, some of us are going to be here forever. But wherever you're at, you're intentionally making disciples. These are the instructions. So to be a going people, which I don't have that on here, but to be a going people, we huddle, remember the promises. Remember, it's in Jesus' hands. We look to Jesus, and we go. We make disciples with intentionality. But he didn't just tell us to be a going people. He told us to be an observing people or to keep watch. And this is a much 
shorter point, so I'll go through this quickly. But what does it mean to be a keeping watch people? Verse 20. Turn there with me. It says, teaching them to observe. That word observe, we're going to hit on that. All that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this word observe carries uh, a different connotation than just observation. A lot of times when you think of the word observe, you're thinking observation makes sense, comes from the same root. But the word translated observe in our text literally means to retain custody, to keep watch, or to guard over. Okay? To observe, is, it, it's, it, it's, it's not just merely looking at it. It's to guard it. It's to keep watch over it. Think about a, a guard keeping watch over a fortress or a jailer keeping watch over the jail cell. Where are your eyes? Where are your eyes? A good guard doesn't have his eyes at his feet. Good guard does not have his eyes back inside the, the, the castle. He's scanning. He's looking. He's keeping watch. Here's the thing. Most people are ineffective in their discipleship because their eyes are not on Jesus. Their eyes are on the other things around us, exciting things or overwhelming things or fearful things or scared things, all of which are true, by the way, all of which happen, by the way, but the moment you take your eyes off Jesus, those things start becoming the preeminent thing in your life, and those things start dictating what you say, what you don't say, and how you disciple. Eyes on Jesus. Before coming on staff full-time, I taught at a private Christian school in St. Louis, and during my time there, I was only there for two years, I was the assistant coach of a baseball team. And I had the great privilege of teaching basketball players how to swing a bat, right? Because our school was small. Our school was primarily basketball-fueled, which meant once those basketball students got done in February, they needed to be in some sport, and so they joined baseball. And none of them knew how to hit. They were quick. We won most of our games stealing bases, but they did not know how to swing. So one of the things I had to do is teach them the fundamentals of a good swing. So much of the good swing is simply consistency and form over and over and over again. A good swing will hit most balls that cross the plate. The other key is eye placement. Don't take your eye off the ball. From the moment you see the pitch release until the moment it hits your bat or crosses the plate, you do not take your eye off the ball. Why? Because what you look at determines what you swing at. What you look at determines where your swing will be. It's the same thing with riding a motorcycle. It's the same thing. You don't turn by turning the handlebars. You get all wonky and weird and fall over. That's why if you're ever at SIUE and they're doing the motorcycle class, you're like, man, why can't they just take a turn? Because they're trying to turn it like you would a wheel. The way you turn on a motorcycle is you look. I'm going right. My eyes are going right. And I'm going to lean into it. That's how you turn. Where your eyes are looking, that's where you're going. And here's the thing, heading back into the text. If we're going to be a people who keep watch, who guard, who observe, then our eyes need to be on Jesus. He says, behold, behold, right? It's a word that draws attention to what follows. And he's just saying, having told his disciples, look at me, then he tells them, I am with you. I'm with you. To the end of the age, I'm with you. In the midst of your excitement, I am with you when you are overwhelmed. I am with you when you are fearful. I am with you when you are scared. I am with you when everything in life looks like it's fallen apart. 
I am with you. So how does this work? Maybe you agree with me this morning. And, and, Brad, I, that sounds great. I, I don't want to be riddled with fear. I don't want to be riddled with anxiety. I don't want to be riddled with the things that are overwhelming or scary or exciting. I, I want my eyes on Jesus, but I'm struggling to have my eyes on Jesus. And here's the thing. If that's you this morning, then you're in good company because I struggle too. I struggle too. I continually fight to keep my eyes centered on Jesus and not on the chaos around me. But if you are in Christ, if Christ is your Lord, then there is hope in him for you. Take a look back at the beginning of that passage. Did you see who Jesus talked with? Did he pull his disciples aside one by one? Did he just have one disciple entrusted to this work? No. He instructed the 11 together. He took them, he huddled them, he gave them and reminded them of the promise. And I think this leads to our first point. We need to be an intentional community of disciples. At some point, it will come on. Intentional. You and I are notorious, each of us, for making poor decisions when left to our own devices. Is it any wonder that Jesus was led into the desert alone to be tempted? That Satan knew this is where I want him if I have the best shot of leading his heart astray. Is it any wonder that Peter denied Christ three times when he was alone, standing outside the court gate? Is it any wonder why Paul encouraged the believers to gather together, not neglecting to meet as some have done? If you're seeking to be faithful for the long haul, faithful, you need to be in and with a community of disciples. You need to be among people who you know and know you. There are no lone range Christians in the Bible, and we're tempted to believe it. Here's the thing, even Elijah right? Prophet of God did some amazing work with the Baals, right? Remember they were offering their sacrifice and he was making fun of them. If you haven't read it, go back. Old Testament's awesome. Elijah, he cries out to God. He's like, only me, only me serves you. And God reminded him, no, I have 7,000 others that have not bent the knee to Baal. So calm down, Elijah. If Elijah is tempted to think just me, I'm the only one, what do you think about you and I? We're going, to tempt, we're going to be tempted to believe we can do this on our own. God and I have got something. I've heard that so many times from students. Oh, I've got my thing with God. I'm like, really? Does it match what's in the Bible? My guess is no. <laughs> my guess is no. Okay? Here's the thing. Community, night, one time a week, community group, that's a start. That's a start. It's a good place to build intentional community, but you must pursue it. You must go after it. The huddle's important. The reminder that he's in control is important. But you must pursue it. He tells you to go. And he's not just telling you to go and tell people about who he is. He's also telling you to go and be a part of the community. Go. Keep watch. Guard. One of the many reasons people give me for not being in community, they say, Brian, no one's really approached me. You know, I've showed up a few times. And just, nah, not really feeling it. Like, I can talk with you. 
We can go and get, you know, drink out, whatever. This whole community thing, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. My response to them is almost always the same, almost always, okay? Then you be the one to approach people. You take the mantle of leadership and push in. You be obedient to what God has said, which is to go. Find those within your community that aren't reaching out, that aren't talking. You reach out to them. Here's the thing. We don't graduate from this. We don't get to check it off the list. And nor should we want to. Brothers and sisters, life is too short. People are too important. And you were given this time for a purpose. But intentional community isn't the only thing we see in this. Intentional community is one. But we're going to be intentionally making disciples. Wow, that's awesome. It's already there. Verse 19. Go, therefore, make disciples. You're like, Brian, we've read this five times. I'm going to read it 15 times. It's awesome. It's the word of God. We need it. At the risk of being too on the nose, verse 19 doesn't have a clause that stipulates professional Christians only. I don't see a clause that says, for missionaries overseas, everyone else need not apply. Instead, what I see is an invitation to share in the harvest of grace. And this leads to our second principle. We need to be intentionally making disciples. So intentional, go, peruamai, go within the people of God. And then go and make his name known. There's a great lie that's been perpetrated on the American church. Many of them. But the one I'm going to talk about this morning is the belief that the way people do ministry is that we pay them to do ministry. Just Steve, Aaron, and I. That's it. Hey, Trail Church is doing their job. We've got three full-time staff. Go. we got a church plant going. Great. Awesome. I'm glad they're doing ministry. What in the world? What in the world? This is it's not just incorrect. It's deadly to your soul. Shepherds, pastors, overseers. Yes, we're called to equip people. But it's so that we would all share in the work. You don't just get to sign a check and be done with it. You're called on to a glorious mission. And sometimes that means signing the check. The glorious mission is to tell the good news of Jesus. It's not optional. It's not just for church planters it's, or missionaries or launch teams or spiritual people. Each of us, each of us are called. Each of us are called. And with your eyes on Jesus, the type of disciple you make is a disciple that looks like him. That's how you foster a heart that makes disciples. Okay. I want to talk about Jesus for just a second since we've been talking about him a lot this morning. What strengthens us to make disciples? What strengthens us is Jesus is with us. We are enabled and qualified. Hear me, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you are a child of God, you are enabled and qualified. Like Brian, I've never been to seminary. Most people that wrote the Bible never went to seminary, okay? Holy Spirit infused, they did just fine. Yeah, but Brian, there's a lot of things I don't know. Okay, pray, read, join a community that's going to encourage those things. You still have the Holy Spirit of God. You still have a hope. Share what little you know. I have seen people share the gospel, and I, 
literally see people come to Jesus, and I looked at it, and I'm like, I don't even know if they made sense. I've stood next to college students, tried to muddle their way through the gospel presentation, see people receive it, and I'm left stuttering like, what just happened? Because the Spirit of God gets the trump card over all of it. I'm not saying don't try to know more. I'm not saying don't try to have knowledge. I'm not saying seminary is bad. I went to seminary. What I am saying is it's the Holy Spirit that changes the heart. We're called to go. And he's qualified and enabled you because he has authority. Here's the thing. We are called to reap in this harvest of grace because he first sowed the seeds. And how? How is it that we have the ability to witness dead men and women come back to life? Because Jesus did. When Jesus took hold of the nails in his hands, he took hold of the nails in his feet, when he cried out because the pains of death surrounded his heart, when he declared that it was finished and yielded up his spirit, because he yielded up his spirit, in that moment, the veil of the temple curtain was torn. The division between the holy and most holies, the division between us and God, torn down because the final sacrifice had been paid. The debt was fully satisfied by his blood. There was no longer a need for propitiation. Jesus covered it. And those in Christ, in that moment, those in Christ rose as new creation after the first fruits of Jesus rising, first creation. No longer bound by sin that enslaved our first parents. Doesn't mean we don't sin. It means we're no longer held captive to it. And we're no longer held captive under this deadly cloak of unrighteousness. Because Christ had torn asunder the chains of death. Don't you realize those chains had choked your neck since the day you were born? And he broke them. And in that, he made us alive. Recreated, renewed, fully known, fully loved, fully covered by the precious blood of Jesus. And it's for this reason that we're able to witness dead men and dead women come back to life. Because Jesus did. Now here's the thing. For you who find yourself far from God this morning, maybe you haven't trusted in Christ as your only hope. Maybe you're coming in here and just checking things out. (laughs) Come. Take part in the glorious harvest of grace. Take part by resting in his finished work, his name. Not in your own name. Take part by repenting of the sin that placed Jesus on the cross, by receiving the great mercy as you accept him as Lord and Savior over your life. Friends, I I don't want you to waste your life worrying about things you can't control. And I don't want you to ignore the question that each of us have to answer, which is what to do with the time that's been given to us. And I do want you to not stop gathering as, as the people of God, as, as some had chosen in Paul's day, we need to gather. And I don't want you to give up just because this season's hard, because we're losing friends, because we're sending people out, because we're not going to sure who's going to take all these leadership roles. Guess what? You. You, the church. And you'll be amazed who God brings in through that. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for giving us an example in your word. I can only imagine as as you stood on that mountain telling, telling your disciples 
that they were going to be the mouthpiece, that they were going to be the people to go, that they were going to be the ones who were share this good news in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And they're thinking like we're thinking, can you just stay? And in a way, you did stay. Lord, you promise you are with us wherever we go. You promise you are here with us until the end of the age. Jesus, let us take hold of that. Jesus, let us take hold of that. Let's be a disciple-making people who make disciples in your image. Eyes turn to you. Let us be a people who are going, a people who huddle together, who are reminding each other of the promises of you, who are reminding each other of the control that we don't have, but that you do because you have all authority in and under heaven, and reminding ourselves of the promise that you walk with us. Let us be a people that drip that. And more importantly, Father, I pray for this church as she enters what is in my opinion, going to be one of the most adventurous times. As you start to bring new people in, as you start to lead people to greater and greater dependence and greater weight-bearing, as friends and families become invited because people take steps of faith to just talk to them, that there's mission here worth fighting for, that there's community here that is worth striving after. Let's be a generous people, which you've allowed this church to be so generous for these past 10 years. May the next 10 be even more so. Lord, I thank you for your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.